Meet Howard, a duck the size of a human child. He is accidentally brought to Earth through a laser beam in an experiment being performed by a Cleveland physicist, Dr. Walter Jenning, and his assistant, Phil Blumbert. Howard ends up in Cleveland where he rescues singer Beverly Switzer from a group of thugs. Beverly and Phil are friends, and when the government is told about Howard, she helps Phil and Dr. Jenning hide him from the authorities until they can get him back home. But then, an evil being arrives through the laser beam and takes possession of Dr. Jenning's body, putting Howard, Beverly and Phil in a fight for their lives. Ciao my people and welcome to our 37th episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast where we cover superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image and more. If it came from a comic and had theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing Howard the Duck. And with me today, seeing the Midwestern connections, is actually a Midwestern girl to join us to discuss this movie. Ladies and gentlemen, we're very happy to have back on the Happiness and Darkness podcast, Holly McMiller. Hey, Holly, how are you doing? Doing great, and I'm glad to be back. <laughs> oh, we're, we're very, very happy to have you back today, Holly. So today we are reviewing Howard the Duck from 1986, directed mm -hmm. by Willard, Willard Hike whom our listeners might know from French postcards, Best Defense and Messiah of Evil. The story is by Willard Hike and Gloria Katz. The original score was by John Barry and Sylvester LeVay, and the songs, dear listeners, were written by none other than Thomas Dolby. Yup, mm -hmm. the guy who brought you such hits as She Blinded Me With Science and Hyperactive. So, on Estimate Holly, this movie cost, to put it into today's terms, it cost about $86.5 million to make, and it made $88.90 million at the box office. So, did we enjoy it? We shall see. Well, my first, my first question is, you know, Holly, I know this is a movie that has been maligned by a lot of people. A lot of people are not fans of, but, you know, when I kind of put out the call for this film, what made you decide to step up to the plate, as it were, and discuss this movie with me? I, one, that will admit that I enjoyed it. I took it for the fun ride that it is. I didn't, I wasn't expecting anything earth-shattering, you know, earth-changing. And <laughs> just give me a good movie that happens to have a talking duck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, well, and what I will also say, Holly, is you are definitely the woman for the job. Seeing that there are a lot of Midwestern connections here, mm -hmm. as of course we have Leah Thompson, who's from Rochester, Minnesota, and Chip mm -hmm. Zine, the voice of Howard, is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and okay. also, yeah, and also director Willard Hike is from Minneapolis. So oh. very much a Midwestern effort. So yes. I thought. I, so I thought it was completely fitting that we had a Midwestern girl to discuss this film. So <laughs> let's get down to it. So let's start with our main duck and hero of this film, Ed Gale as the main suit performer as Howard and Chip Zine as, as the voice of Howard the Duck. Now, when it comes to our hero here and, and Howard, what did you make of him and, uh, you know, and, and what we got to see of him in this film? I mean, he would take, he doesn't take any gruff from anyone, but it's just like he, you could tell that he had that music course, but then, you know, 
decided that, hey, everybody was telling him, you need to get a real job, and you could tell that he was disappointed in it. I mean, he's got the sarcastic wit, and when push comes to shove, when he, he, he makes a friend, he's going to back you up. Oh, very well said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, the character in this movie compared to the comics is rather different because mm-hmm. where shall we say the original Howard is almost more of a satirical character. He was almost created with this existentialist point of view. He's almost like mm-hmm. as a, a parody on other genres of fiction. Gloria Katz, one of the screenwriters for the movie, decided to adapt this character to film saying it's a film about a duck from outer space. It's not supposed to be an existential experience. Mm-hmm. So I guess I see where she was coming from. Though I understand a lot of you know comic book fan, fans of the comic were a little bit their feelings were hurt a little bit by this. But when it when it comes you know to me you know no disrespect to the fans of the comic at all. Bear in mind Howard of course had been in print and on and off since the seventies. So like 1970, since 1973. So this, she'd been around for about 13 years before this movie came out. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I know this movie gets tons of hate. And I'm, and, you know, I think it's going to be two of us here because I'm pro- we're probably going to go against the grain today because I actually, like you, very much enjoyed Howard in this film. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe going back to watching movies that are over 30 years old and now seeing what Marvel has done since then, I think it can be a blessing and a curse because... Uh-huh. You know, in this case, I found this was almost refreshing and fun because it's so different cinematically. And, you know, like you were saying, just like with me, with Batman and Robin or Ghost Rider, I think it depends on what kind of emotional investment you go into this movie. So, you know, because obviously if you're expecting to find a super serious um, existentialist duck, you're not going to get that. But, you know, I know we were going into a space oddity, literally, but mm-hmm. like you, you know, you can't but warm up to Howard quickly. It's your fish out of water, and he's an incredibly reluctant hero that finds himself becoming the savior of a world he knows nothing about. And one, I think he's actually rather scared or even hostile to him. I, you know, you also get the impression I thought that he's very much a good-natured duck, if at times a little bit lecherous. I mean, yeah. when. It, when it came to the, so we say, the little almost sexual overtones and, you know, Howard being, should we say, a little bit of a 27-year-old lech, did that, uh, bother you, did that bother you at all? Not really. I mean, for the time that it was in, and I'm sure that they were trying to, I'm sure the studio rec- probably through those lines, there's probably going to be a, quite a few kids and mom and dad are getting dragged along to this. We might want to throw a couple things in to keep mom and dad entertained. <laughs> well, I, I suppose so, because, um, you know, what I thought was well placed, because unlike the saucy mm-hmm. jokes you get in Batman Returns, I actually found these funny and found myself almost like Beverly, kind of shaking my head, kind of, oh, Howard, kind of thing. Yeah, because- <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because all in all, I think he's very entertaining. And during the brief links we get on Duck World at the beginning, you know, he gave me the impression of being an almost jaded with life character. You know, he wants to kind of make more of himself. But like you were saying, he's never been able to find something long term that would give him the success he craves. Also, I love the quack foo. What did you know? What did you think of the quack food? Did you find that kind of ridiculous, or did you like what we got with the quack food? I, I at first I thought it was re- a little ridiculous, and was like, "Hey, 
it works. <laughs> and then two in the bar when he's trying to scare off the ex-manager of Beverly's band with the space rabies. <laughs> I'll bite you in. You're going to be gone in 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, that was fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and also I think it's it almost, it, it's weird how perfect in style with Marvel today some of the yes. humor is. I you mean, I, I could yeah. see this fit in right with Guardians of the Galaxy. I could see Howard and Rocket teaming up and going somewhere for some shenanigans and Star-Lord just like, Oh, can we just disavow them right now? (laughs) You know what? Now I really want a Howard the Duck Rocket Raccoon crossover movie. (laughs) It would be hilarious, I think. But yeah, and also, believe it or not, you know, I thought the character, I could also get very much behind it. Not to mention, I think the puppeteers did a fantastic. Oh, yes. You know, I know that you guys on the fantastic, on the uh, Five-ish Bangles podcast, you've often discussed Muppet movies and what have you. So mm-hmm. you've had to discuss puppeteering. Did, was the puppeteering, did it feel kind of old to you or did you find it so, so could you buy into what we saw on screen with the, the puppeteering of Howard? I can, I could still buy into it. I mean, and then the, that big space demon at the end, I'm, for, Considering, I mean, it still holds up. I mean, you can kind of see the sparkle fade a little bit. But, I mean, that was all stop motion from Phil Tippett of Star Wars fame. And, I mean, it still holds up. I mean, probably all the special effects that we saw, those are probably cutting edge when it came out. So I, I still think it held up pretty darn good. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I think really for the, for the time, the, you, I think the special effects were, were great because if you go and obviously look at other movies that were made during that period, you probably would get, I think, effects akin to these. Mm-hmm. So, so, of course, we looked at Howard. Let's get to his closest Earth friend and in certain cases, girlfriend in the comics. Leah Thompson as Beverly Switzer, Switzler, who our um, listeners might know, obviously, from Back to the Future, Caroline in the City, Some Kind of Wonderful, and the Beverly Hillbillies. So, curiously here, um, Holly, the musician's storyline is completely made up for the film. Mm-hmm. As in the comics, when Howard first meets Beverly, she is actually a nude model. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> no surprise, once again, we get the lecturer stuff going on. He's... Yep. She's then, you know, she's then kidnapped by this Marvel villain known as Pro Rata, from whom she's rescued by Howard, and she then allows him to live with her. And from there, they go on many adventures together. And later, on a romantic, a romantic bond is actually formed. So, I think they kind of hinted at this in the film, but also in the comics, for the most part, is a platonic relationship. Now, before we actually look at the relationship that caused a lot of people trouble, and folks were a little bit. Uh, should we say, um, embarrassed about or just like kind of disgusted with? What did you think of Beverly Switzer and, and uh, you know, the, um, and uh, were you a fan of um, Leia Thompson? I, I thought she did a great job. And I mean, her coming off of Back to the Future and that just, you know, to keep th- her career going. I mean, George Lucas was behind this film too. So, I mean, Go for it, you know, <laughs> star name. And I liked her character as the rock star and her trying to 
stand up for herself and then trying not to back down, but then have having Howard to kind of help her, and then he she helped him. So they were kind of actually feeding off each other and giving each other the support that I think they didn't know that they really needed from each other to make each other better. True. I, I, I think they both kind of needed somebody, and, and I think that's probably why they work so well together. I mean, I, I did enjoy this version of Beverly, though at times I don't know if it was just me, but she did seem sometimes a little bit of an airhead and naive at times. I mean, you can tell mm-hmm. her heart is in the right place and that she's a kind person, but you do get the impression that she and her band Cherry Bomb are a little clueless, you know, because it seems to me they are so easily swindled by their manager when it comes to being paid for their gigs. Mm-hmm. And she has also this rather innocent view of the world, which may also account for her warming up so quickly to Howard. I mean, did you get that impression as well that maybe there was a little bit too much naivete on her part? Or or do you think it's just because she's such a good-natured person that she trusts everybody? I think it's probably because she's such a good-natured person, she trusts everybody. And also, too, probably because of the fact maybe that she doesn't have much of a choice. <laughs> she's got to mm. stick with this manager and let him give them, you know, take what he quote-unquote wants and needs and then hopefully they can find something better and kick him to the curb. (laughs) Because he doesn't seem like the nicest person or the nicest manager. No, I mean, mean, while they're playing, he's trying to sell the band to somebody else. It's like, and no. (laughs) Because I'm thinking some of those other ladies in the band, if they found that out, they'd be having a little conversation and somebody would be winding up getting hurt <laughs> oh this is very true very true never never cross an all-female rock band folks you will get hurt um, but and when it comes to like i said the troubled relationship or what a lot of folks when they went to see this movie were a little bit upset about or even disgusted with this seemingly kind of once again um, sexual overtones between Beverly and Howard. I mean, because some folks were like, oh, what are you doing here? You can't have a duck and a, uh, and a human, you know, be together, let alone have sex. And, we, and granted, it does, this doesn't happen, but did you, I mean, did, were you at all shocked by what things seem to be happening and the relationship that Beverly and Howard have? Not not really shocked. I mean, it was like, okay, all right, you know, happens and just, you know, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And I mean, I don't think they were taking it themselves too seriously. I mean, I think it was more of a teasing nature and that was about it. I think, I think so too, because I must admit, you know, at first when we do get Beverly kissing Howard, I was a little bit surprised, even knowing what happens in the, in the comics, as it did maybe come across as a little bit weird. Also, though, I was constantly wondering whether she was just messing with him <clears throat> or whether whether she would actually have slept with him. So you think she was she was kind of messing with him more than anything else? Yeah, I think he was. Just, yeah, she. I think she was just more messing with him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because outside of that reason, because I say she's a little clueless and innocent, as in the various times that Howard is kind of ogling her and she dismisses it with this, oh, Howard remark. I think 
that was kind of made me think that she might be a little bit naive. But also, I guess, you know, we're talking about a movie that came out in the 80s. So a very sex-drenched period. So right. where you probably have that naive innocence, which was rare, especially in the hard rock circle. So, mm-hmm. so I think that is, yeah. And then, too, she is from the, her character's probably from the Midwest, so that old Howard could be her nice way of kind of cursing him out, but in a way that he doesn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know. That's That's the way I guess they do it in the Midwest. I mean, you know this, so, I mean, you mm-hmm. probably thought that. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I think... Yeah, it's like it's not what you think it means, or you. It might be, but in this case, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also, I think that you know, we find her relationship with Howard. I find it incredibly endearing more than anything else because he almost seems more travelled than she is. Though he may also be as innocent as we see he is, because he's clearly shocked when she starts flirting with him. Because you know, first he's like plays the confident guy, kind of maybe you should try your luck in the animal kingdom and stuff. And then when she takes him on, you know, takes him on it, mm-hmm. uh, he suddenly is freaking out. So, <laughs> like, whoa, wait a minute here. I wasn't expecting my bravado to pay off. Um, I didn't mean what I said. <laughs> exactly. Be careful what you wish for, folks. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought, I mean, Beverly was very likable, despite possibly maybe being a little bit ditzy now and then. But I guess that's part of her charm. And hey, you can't go wrong with that 80s teased hair. So mm, she, no. she won brownie points for me on that one. Oh, so let's get to the third member of the Duck Troop, Tim Robbins as Phil Blumbert. <laughs> Masters might know from Shawshank Redemption, Jacob's Ladder and Mystic River. And actually, he was completely created for this film as the only two characters from the comics are actually just Howard and Beverly. So when it came to this third member of the troop, Holly, what did you think of Phil Blumpert? Oh, I mean, he was comic relief times 10. I'm just, you know, Howard, can you read my mind? And then he's kind of talking to him in quote-unquote duck talk, almost like Donald Duck. He's like, can you laser beam this <laughs> this board? And it's just like... Howard really wants to take that pipe or that board and whap you upside the head with it, and so does Beverly, but they're both being too nice to say anything. Oh, yes. I mean, did you, I, I, I don't know about you, because I at times found him a little bit annoying. I, yeah, he kind of did great on me a little bit, but then when he was kind of off doing some other stuff, it's like, okay, get a breather, and then, okay, Phil, you can come back now, or... Go annoy the other doctor. Come on, do something to get the detective out of the room. Something, please. <laughs> yeah, because that, that was exactly it. You know, it was the fact like he kind of thinks that Howard might not understand him and stuff. So that maybe seemed to me a little bit annoying. But like you were saying, I, I suppose he is the comedic relief in this film. And he's pretty much also rather clueless. It, you know, all these humans make Howard look even better because everybody seems like they have no clue about what's going on. I mean, you think that Phil would have picked up some scientific knowledge working in a scientific environment, or that he would at least be scientifically inclined. And, I mean, he to me, he seemed like very much a misfit and is just hoping that something will come around that will sort of 
elevate his social status. And we do find out that he's dating one of Beverly's band members, which is why he is around in the first place. But, um, you know, I pretty much was on Howard's side when it came to their banter. Phil was just sometimes so annoying and inept, not to mention he seems almost ready to betray Howard towards the end of the film. You know, when he's yelling that he's been taken hostage by him. I mean... I, I get what he was around to do, but I think we could have possibly done without him as well. I mean, do you think he was an essential part to this film? It's, I don't know. I mean, he he helps move the plot along a little bit, but then I could kind of see we could have probably done a little bit without him. You know, I was kind of more interested in the detective a little bit, played by Paul Guilfoyle, otherwise known as Captain Jim Brass from CSI, I would have had him more as an interest trying to track Howard down and say, hey, is this true? Because yeah. he seemed more of a threat. And then, of course, you know, the Dark Underlord and then um, oh, the, prof- the professor played by Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I agree with you. I think it would have been actually cool to maybe expand the role of the detective more because you're thinking to yourself, this is an alien who has landed in Cleveland and there seems to be something, you know, first nobody seems to like notice and then of course we get that major chase with obviously Phil and Howard and him being chased by, 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 the, by the police and stuff. But I agree with you. I think the role of the detective was maybe a little bit underserved and we could have had maybe more of him and less of Phil Blumbert. But that's, that's just my opinion. And since, you know, you, you touched up on him, let's get to the here and to the villain of this picture, but, you know, also a guy who tries to help Howard as well, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Jones as Dr. Walter Jennings and one of the dark overlords of the universe. I mean, as we know, Holly, this man has been in so many films from Beetlejuice to The Devil's Advocate to Ferris Bueller's Day Off and also Deadwood. So I'm assuming, first off, that you were a fan of Jeffrey Jones's work. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeffrey Jones is a great character actor. It's kind of like, oh, that guy, I like you or I hate you with <laughs> because you play a good, you know, you play a bad guy that you grow to love to hate. And Jennings, at first you like him and then when he gets possessed, it's just like, Oh, I'm not liking you so much. <laughs> you, you deserve what you're going to get. So when it came to actually you know, looking at the first the role of the scientist, did you like this, uh, this, you know, this almost different take on what a scientist was like in the 80s? Because, you know, I was thinking of like E.T., for example, mm-hmm. other movies made in that period where the scientists always seemed like the bad people who wanted to take the alien away, wanted to cut him or her up and, you know, just kind of use them for their own ends. So from what I'm gathering from you, you enjoyed, the, should we say, the Dr. Walter Jennings that we got. Yeah, because he was more than willing to like, hey, our mistake with our experiment, we pulled you from your home world. We're going to try to fix it and send you back because he does. He has no he doesn't want to experiment on Howard. He's just like, hey, let's get you back home. And it's like. That's a first, because normally most of the scientists that I know of in movies, when they see something that is alien, they'll say that, but then we're going to keep you and do experiments on you. So it was kind of refreshing. 
Oh yes, it very much, it very much was. I mean, that's, that's that's exactly what I loved about this film is it didn't carry that typical cliche of the evil scientist. So, you know, unlike Phil, at least here we get a competent scientist. And yes. you know, though we see him briefly before he does get possessed by the Dark Overlord, you know, he, we did have that rather jittery quality. And at times you wonder whether he really does know what he's doing. I kind of almost got sometimes a Doctor Who vibe. As mm-hmm. he's a little bit like the Doctor who's like, oh, I know what I'm doing. And he's kind of like pressing buttons at random. But, um, Let's but I, hope but this I, works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's the kind of vibe I did get. But oh, unlike Phil... He has, at least he has respect for Howard. That's what I liked, is he, try, he treats Howard uh, like an equal. And so I thought that was, that was great compared to like Phil completely kind of saying, you know, how do I communicate with you? And kind of giving me a bit of a wider berth, even though I'm assuming this is the first alien that Jennings may have ever seen. So you have to admit he's rather cool about it. Mm-hmm. Very cool about it. Because, I mean, normally when somebody first meets it, it's just like, okay, let's lock you up and run the gamut and ask questions about you later. <laughs> Test away. Yeah, very much so. So I really love that for sure. And when it came, you know, and so I love that, that relationship and that respect because, you know, aside, I guess, from Phil, Howard's real only friend is sort of Beverly. And here I think we could have had a second friend, it's a shame that obviously he goes the way he does. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, I, but I really like that. And um, outside of that, you know, when it came to, the, to his dark side, or should we say when he's taken over by the Dark Overlord, what did you think of our villain in this film? Um, it was good. And then there were some times where I think they almost went a little too far and kind of made it, you know, kind of a campy, type horror or evilness that really didn't bring the severity that, you know, this is bad. Yeah, true. I mean, because for the style of the movie, I think it it suited the style of the movie, though Mm -hmm. at times, you know, what, what I had doubts on was you have to try and understand the extents of this creature's powers. Right. To constantly be shifting. Case in point, when he shoots rays at people, in some cases it seems to kill them, and in others it seems to just paralyze them. Mm-hmm. Like when we see with when Beverly and Phil are trapped in one of his beams and he fires at them multiple times. So that was a little bit odd, because you'd think that by that time they're being blasted so many times. Granted, I'm nitpicking here, but mm-hmm. you'd think that by then they would have been dead or or and they wouldn't have just could have gotten up as if nothing had happened right or you would have thought that because is jenny you know when the dark overlord possessed jennings is jennings still there or is it kind of like the case with supernatural when an angel or a demon kind of inhabits the body sometimes the soul of that person they inhabit is gone and depending on how powerful they are and how much power they use that host doesn't live very long. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that perspective. That's 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 a that's a nice a nice insight there. I mean, and also uh, there's another thing. And I, you know, I I love this film, but there are I do have some gripes with it because mm-hmm. the, the argument the other argument I was going to make was the having a weapon handy to destroy the Overlord, like the neutron disintegrator, may have been a little convenient. 
But hey, it's a science lab, so I suppose they have all sorts of gizmos and gadgets lying around in padlocked cabinets. Yeah, and who's not to say how many secret top defense contracts they have? Oh, hush hush experiment. Ooh, what's this? Let's try it and see. Take out the dark overlord? Sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, so it was convenient, but I suppose there there is that whole thing of what is science hiding from us. So it could be that they had developed this incredible weapon. Jeffrey Jones, I think, did a great job of playing the Dark Overlord, and definitely kudos to him. Yeah. And I actually found him more menacing, as it were, in his hidden form than in his true form. Yeah. Think about when when the Dark Lord kind of sh- Overlord sh- sheds you know, Jennings skin as it were, and we actually get the Dark Overlord per se. I mean, I know the the, the effects were what they were, but did you enjoy, uh, you know, the true form of the Dark Overlord? Uh, it was good for what it was. I mean, they tried to make him menacing, but I think it was more menace when the Dark Overlord was in Jennings's quote-unquote body, her suit, you know, I mean, sure, showing the Dark Overlord's truth thing, okay, yeah, we get that you're bad, but he just seemed more menacing in the human form. I think so, too. Not to mention all the, the hair changes that Jones went through with portraying mm-hmm. that character. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was, that was actually more fun, though. You know, I did not mind his true form as much, but I'm sure that a lot of modern-day viewers may mind it as the special effects let's be honest have not aged well but mm-hmm. i'm thinking you know you being a fellow whovian like me um we, we're used to uh, you know, shoddier special effects and mm-hmm. we forgive them right and then i'm thinking to myself too that was probably the most high-tech special effect for the dark overlord when the movie came out so I'm going to give it a little bit of a pass. No, that's why, because I kind of look through it, as, as I said, once again, through through Whovian eyes. And since, you know, back then, monsters that or aliens that were clearly either puppets or just really shoddy special effects, I was cool with it anyway. Mm-hmm. Though I know that, you know, there are people out there who are like, oh, come on, I will never buy into this because it's just too old. But I think you kind of have to run with it for what it is because it is a comedy to, for the most part. So you kind of have to take it for what it is. And here was something else. I don't know about you, but the design of the Overlord looked uncannily like Mikey the alien that we see in the first Men in Black movie. Yes. And then one of the other aliens almost had the touch of the demon from the Doctor Who Lazarus episode. See, so I wonder, wonder, there's a lot of Doctor Who connections, and I wonder whether Men in Black maybe took from this, because obviously Men in Black came out years later, Mm -hmm. but I wonder whether this might have been a homage, seeing as they're both part of the Marvel Universe, so you never know. Exactly. So it's a, it's, it's a curious one. So, But yeah, I think all in all, a very enjoyable villain. They're, of course, a very 80s sci-fi villain, and I have no problems with that. So, you know, all in all here, Holly, any final thoughts on the film before we move forward, or was there something else that you wanted to touch up on? I, I have to say um, the music wasn't bad at all. I mean, Thomas Dolby did some awesome work, and that was actually 
um, Leah Thompson singing, and one of her background gals was Holly Pete or Holly Robinson, who wow. later came to be in like sitcoms, hanging with Mr. Cooper and all that. So I was like, wow. <laughs> Oh, so so I'm assuming you're you were a fan of like '80s hair metal, '80s synth pop. Um, a little bit. I mean, late I was more you know kind of the sticks classic rock, but then as later on as I grew up and in high school, I kind of went and rediscovered some of this other stuff, and I'm like, hey, nice. <laughs> I'll listen. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, I, I, a good point, because I actually did want to touch up on the music a little bit, because some of the Cherry Bomb songs are actually really good. You know, Hunger yes. City, good song, mm -hmm. Don't Turn Away, and of course, Howard the Duck. My, mm -hmm. You know what, I don't know about you, but I've had that song in my head all week. Me too, <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll be humming, I was humming it when I was out walking, and my dogs were like, again? Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is that catchy, folks. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a, so. Yeah, I've, I've been. I, I've had the same problem as you. You know, during the even you know, kind of walking around my apartment or whatever, I've, I've been either whistling it or humming it. So I guess mm -hmm. Thomas Dolby knows how to write a good pop song. Yes, and I'm surprised too that he didn't. They didn't put him in for a cameo. You'd think so. He would have done good. I mean, I could have even have seen him as um, Phil. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I mean, because it, it could have done like a Ninja Turtles thing where we had Vanilla Ice do Go Ninja Go. It yep. was a bit kind of maybe neat to have for the final show, final, you know, show of uh, Cherry Bomb when you know, they're playing this huge arena, actually have Thomas Dolby come on stage. I think that would be kind of neat. Mm -hmm. And then the voice actor who did Howard, he did an awesome job because I was he was almost kind of channeling too, like Richard Dreyfus. Oh yes, almost with some of the sarcast, just the sarcastic way that it came out. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> it, see, so we really, did, it really seems like we enjoyed this film. The other thing I was wondering about: what did you think of the duck puns? Did you find them a little bit on the nose, and or, or did they bother you at all? They didn't. They didn't bother me. I mean, some of the stuff in the in the duck world in the opening, it was just, it was just like cool i mean the howard and the heartbreakers the um foul wars beaks breeders of the lost orc i'm just like nice you know nice little nods i i think too because at the end of the day we're thinking this is a parallel universe or rather it's right. part of the multiverse so that's their version that we have over here so it works um, the only thing I did have a gripe with, and I remember this was the thing that kind of turned me off the film the very first time I've watched it, was the duck nipples. Granted, yeah, that was one of my, I was, yeah, we could have done without that, but it is what it is. <laughs> Granted, it was only very brief. It's mm -hmm. like a couple of seconds, but I was like, oh, come on. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do yeah. that. <laughs> but you you that, had to go there. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was maybe a little bit excessive, but other than that, I think it was it was a good movie. So, um, so let's get to ratings. Then at this point, where does this movie rate for you on a scale of one to ten? Um, I'd have to give it a nine out of ten. Wow. I mean, for what it was, it. I mean, I know that they went back in the Marvel universe and added Howard in, but I mean, I think this still can kind of fit 
you know, maybe this is another pocket universe Howard. <laughs> mm. Just, I mean, I could still see it fitting within the Marvel universe, even though it came out in the, you know, 80s. I, I definitely would love to have a revamped version of Howard the Duck in this current universe for sure, because watching this, it made me realize how much I miss that little guy. So I would definitely love to have him back. You know, I'm you, I rated this rather high. I'm going to go a little bit low. I'm going to give this a seven and a half out of 10 as duck nipples aside, which is something I will never accept. I'm sorry, but I did find this film incredibly entertaining and fun. Not to mention it was great to take a trip back to the eighties and delve into that style of cinema this one, I think, will, will, it will never win accolades or be praised. But, heck, I found it super, super fun for what it was. And, folks, if you've never checked it out, and don't just base yourself on what you've seen on either Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb or whatever. Check it out at least once. I think it's a movie that people should see at least once in their lives. And, and too, you get to find out a little bit, bit more about George Lucas himself because he enjoyed the comics. And that's why he wanted to make this movie. And... To yep. the asteroid field when Howard's making his way from his home planet to Earth, it was almost like the asteroid field that the Millennium Falcon flew through when Empire Strikes Back. I'm just like, ooh, nice little nod there. I like that. Yes, it's true. So maybe that's where Lucas got his ideas. So, um, and next, of course, you know, Holly, I don't know if you were, were you familiar at all with the Howard the Duck comics? No, I I wasn't. I did a little research online, so I've never actually sat down and read any of the comics. Mm. Okay, no, because, well, then, if you are interested in ever picking up a Howard the Duck comic, I do have some recommendations for okay. uh, I suppose for yourself and, of course, you know, for any of our folks out there who would like to read more about Howard the Duck in comic book form. First off, I would definitely suggest Howard the Duck issue one, which is not really Howard's first appearance, but it's the debut issue of Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck, which is extraordinarily weird and satirical. The comic opens with the titular hero contemplating suicide and then deciding to climb a tower made of credit cards to do this. While making his potentially fateful ascent, Howard meets the beautiful Beverly Switzer for the first time, who for the next 35 plus years would function as his sidekick and sometimes girlfriend. So definitely check out Howard the Duck number one. And also I would suggest Howard the Duck from issue one to issue four from the 2000s, these was written by Ty Templeton and Juan Bobillo. It's a miniseries from 2007. And here, this miniseries is probably the closest any creative team has gotten to capturing the off-the-wall anarchy of Gerber's original Howard incarnation. Here, here we get a, a lot of a, very much the satirical stuff. We get, of course, once again, uh, Beverly Switzer. We get uh, characters like She-Hulk. Um, Howard the Duck also battles um, villains like Modoc. So it's a very interesting one indeed. So let me check out Howard the Duck issues one through four. So, Holly, we selflessly promoted stories. Let's get to shameless self-promotion. <laughs> when it comes to you and what you do, where can our fine listeners find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find me as one-fifth of the Five-ish Fangirls podcast, the fiveishfangirls.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then you can find myself personally on Twitter and Instagram at hollymac underscore 79. 
Perfect. And folks, I definitely will suggest you check out the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. It is a fantastic podcast and definitely very insightful and entertaining. So be sure to check out um, Holly and the rest of the great girls at the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. When it comes to us, of course, if you want to be like Holly and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We also really appreciate your thoughts and feedback about the show. You can reach out to us with those also at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com, and we'll read them out here on the show. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at High Darkness Pod, or on Instagram under Hin Darkness. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast and are feeling generous, you can hit the donate button on soundcloud.com slash whiskey and cigarettes or become patrons of ours on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash happiness and darkness. We really appreciate that. Any donators will be able to pick the movie we next discuss, even pick one of the current co-hosts we discuss it with or come on the show themselves to discuss the movie of their choice. Also, as always, we want to thank our video maker, David Moreno, the mad scientist behind all the great episode trailers you can find on our Facebook page. Be sure to subscribe to his nostalgia channel on YouTube. The man does great work. And speaking of things to come, next week we'll be joined by Ben Stover to discuss the 2004 Jonathan Hensley film, The Punisher. <laughs> that said, when it comes to you, Holly, once again, I look forward to having you back here on Happiness and Darkness, and I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome, and I'd be happy to come back anytime, anytime. And you know well, you're more than welcome to come to the Five-ish Fangirls. <laughs> oh, we, I, I, yeah. Oh, I definitely cannot wait. Definitely look forward to that indeed. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next week with Ben Stover and The Punisher. Until then, stay super. Ciao, my people.